Peter is writing to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, who are scattered over a large area of Asia Minor, north of the Taurus Mountains, to encourage them in the midst of difficult trials, primarily persecutions because of their faith in Christ. And you will notice that he encourages them first by reminding them of gospel truth. Nothing helps a Christian more than a fresh proclamation of the gospel. But not the shallow gospel of 21st century American evangelicalism, but the robust, full-orbed gospel of Christ and of his apostles. And we are learning immediately that Peter is no less theological than Paul. Peter, the unlearned fisherman that some have thought didn't know much and many have identified with because they don't know much. But when you read this epistle of Peter, you realize that, number one, he really had a better education than many people give him credit for. He writes in very excellent Greek. But number two, he was taught much by the Spirit of God, and he does not come far behind the Apostle Paul when it comes to a theological understanding of the gospel. Today, the title of our sermon is Blessings Abound. And we are picking up the last part of verse 2 and verse 3, wherein we see, number one, that Peter blesses his readers, that's verse 2, And number two, Peter blesses his God. First of all, Peter blesses his readers. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is a blessing. And what is the setting of this blessing? It comes in the salutation of this epistle. The salutation, which follows the customary format of epistles, that is, letters of that day, it begins by identifying the author, in this case, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. It secondly identifies the recipients, and we've already studied through that wonderful description of the recipients of these letters, this letter, rather, a very instructive description, indeed, for God's people today. But we have not yet given attention to the formal greeting that concludes the salutation, namely these words, grace to you and peace be multiplied, which serves in the place of the formal greeting according to the customary salutation of letters in that day. But though similar to the wording of pagan greetings, we find that these words are changed in order to give them a Christian content, grace And peace. This would not be what you would find in a pagan epistle of that day. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace are words that are very commonly found in the greetings of the Apostle Paul in his epistles. And we find a similar greeting in the epistles of Peter. And what is the purpose of this blessing? Well, I can assure you that it is more than a mere formality. The changing of the words in a distinctly Christian direction assure us of that. Peter is not simply following the customary wording of his day in order to give them a familiar greeting, but he is deliberately and directed by the Holy Spirit of God altering that 
customary greeting in order to give it Christian content. The purpose, therefore, of this blessing is, first of all, I think, to set the tone of the epistle. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. It gives us a sense of what Peter is going to say to follow the salutation. It tells us that his epistle will be friendly and affirming and helpful to his readers. But more than setting the tone of the epistle, Peter is invoking God's blessing upon his readers. That's what he is doing. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. These words are a greeting, but they express a desire on the part of the Apostle Peter what he wants to see take place in the lives of those Christians that he is writing this to. He wants God's blessing to be upon them. He desires very much for grace and peace to be theirs in abundant measure. We can therefore see these words as an invocation. What is an invocation? An invocation is a term for a specific kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that either invites God to be present with us or invites God to bless someone. And it is that kind of invocation which is here. Peter is articulating a desire in prayer. I pray that God's grace and peace will be multiplied to you. And because he is invoking a blessing upon them, this also, therefore, could be called a benediction. And what is a benediction? A benediction is a pronouncement of a blessing. And you find them scattered all throughout the New Testament. This one is similar to the one found at the end of Paul's second Corinthian epistle, where he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. That, of course, is a fuller expression, but it carries the same ideas. Grace and peace be yours in fullest measure because of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Grace and peace in great measure. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Be yours in abundance is the way the NIV translates it. And so Peter is not only setting a warm and encouraging tone to his epistle, but he is deliberately invoking God's blessing, God's benediction upon them. But furthermore, by wording it the way he does, he intends to remind his readers of important truth. And what is that? Well, he wants to remind them, first of all, of their constant need for grace. Grace to you be multiplied written to those who have already experienced the saving grace of Christ, written to those who have been saved by grace, but Peter is now invoking additional grace, more grace, abundant grace upon those who are already recipients of God's saving grace. This, therefore, is to remind them that they not only, we not only, need God's grace to save us, but we need God's grace to sustain us in our Christian life, to protect us from the many dangers which are coming at us from all sides, to provide for us in our earthly sojourn, to guide us throughout the danger points of our life. We are still in need of God's grace 
even as we were in need of God's grace before we came to know the Savior. And so he reminds them of their constant need for grace. He reminds them also of the nature and source of peace. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. And what is peace? Simon Kistemacher defines peace as that state of internal happiness expressed externally. That state of internal happiness expressed externally. If you have the peace of God within your heart, it fills your heart with joy. And you express that in various ways, namely and foremost in praise to God. Edmund Hebert defines peace as the state of well-being that flows from being reconciled and forgiven. Peace is the state of well-being that flows from being reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins. That's what brings real peace to our souls. And so Peter is teaching us that peace is a benefit that follows God's grace. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for those who do not seek their peace in God. There is no peace for those who are not recipients of God's saving grace. Grace comes first. Peace comes second. Peace must follow grace. If there is no divine grace, there can be no genuine peace. For peace is based upon a right relationship with God. And therefore I say to those of you who are seeking peace, joy, happiness, fulfillment in the world, in the pleasures and joys of the flesh, in the things that the unconverted around you are seeking their pleasure in, I remind you, dear friends, there is no lasting pleasure there. All of those things are temporary. They are merely baubles that delight for a moment and then quickly burst and leave deadness of soul and remorse and discouragement and despair in their wake. They are mere placebos that will cover over the pain of your soul for a short while, just long enough to keep you from seeking peace from Christ, the only place where true peace can be found, and to keep you grasping after yet another placebo, another placebo, another placebo, another placebo. Some people, unfortunately, throughout their entire lives, chasing butterflies, chasing rainbows, but never finding anything which satisfies the soul. Peace follows grace. Furthermore, Peter is reminding us that it is possible to have assurance of salvation. That is possible. And why do I say that? Because there can be no peace if there is no sense that I have been reconciled to God, that I have been forgiven of my sins. If I do not have some God-given assurance that these things are true for me, then I cannot experience this peace within my soul. And therefore, for Peter to desire, to pray for, to invoke the blessing of peace upon his readers is to invoke 
the blessing of assurance of sins forgiven upon his readers as well. But in all of this, Peter is teaching an attitude of dependence to the people of God. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. And where do you find peace? In Christ, in Christ alone. You are dependent upon him. Where do you get grace? You get it from God and God alone. You are dependent upon him. And so, as a child of God, you need to continually and consciously seek these things from God. To be conscious of your need for grace and to continually apply for it before the throne of God. To be continually aware of your need for greater measures of peace and to apply for that too before the throne of God. And thus we live our entire Christian lives in a conscious state of dependence upon the God who made us and the God who has saved us by his grace. Peter blesses his readers with much grace and peace and truth. But secondly, Peter blesses his God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is the nature of this blessing? Well, Peter is blessing God. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that when men bless God, and that is appropriate, and we find an example of it here, but that when men bless God, that is very different from the kind of blessing that we receive when God blesses men. When God blesses men, he confers blessings. He makes us blessed. When we are blessed of God, we are blessed. When we are blessed of God, it is not merely pronouncing a wish. It is a conferring of something that is real and tangible. To be blessed of God is to receive the blessings which God alone is able to give. Those spiritual blessings, those divine blessings, those eternal blessings which flow to us only from God by His grace. If God blesses you, you are blessed indeed. What happens when men bless God? We cannot confer anything upon God. We cannot make God more blessed than He already is. We cannot give to God anything that He needs. We cannot give to God anything that He does not already have. We cannot give to God anything that's good, that is not within His domain and control. In fact, we can't give God anything that He hasn't first given to us. We can't really give God, we can't confer upon God blessings in the sense that God confers blessings upon us. So what do we do when we, as men and women, bless God, as Peter is doing here? We eulogize Him. That's really what the Greek word here is. At funerals, we often eulogize the person who is there. That is, we we tell good things about them. We tell how their life has touched the lives of others. We tell how their life has been a help and a blessing to others. We praise them. We honor them. Hopefully, always, always, by deferring all of that praise to the God who by His grace worked in their lives and gave them His grace 
and allowed them to do and be what they are. Otherwise, it becomes worship of men rather than the worship of God. And a funeral service, like every service that we have in a church, is primarily worship of God, not of men. But we do, I think, properly eulogize men, and that helps us understand what this means. To eulogize God is to proclaim, praise Him, rather. To eulogize God is to proclaim His worth. Where does the word worship come from? It is a derivation from the Old English word worth-ship. To ascribe to God His worth. To tell His worth to others. That's what worship is. It is to praise Him publicly. When we gather together to worship God, what do we do? Well, we do a number of things, and all of them are important elements of worship. But one of the important elements of worship is that we unite our voices together and we give praise to God. We honor God. We thank God. We ascribe blessing to God. We tell of His greatness. We tell of His love. We tell of His power. We tell of His wisdom. We tell of His might. We tell it enthusiastically and delightedly because we have experienced the blessings of these in our soul. One translation translates this, Praise be to God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the idea. Peter is praising God. That's what it means to bless Him. But notice the object of Peter's praise. It is, of course, God. He is the one who ultimately alone deserves our praise. But God in one particular aspect of his being, God in one special relationship, it is God in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One article, two nouns. The God and Father. So God and Father are one and the same. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is talking about God the Father's relationship to Christ the Son. Christ our Savior. At first that may seem like strange language to talk about the God of Jesus Christ. The Father of Jesus Christ we can understand because we at least are familiar with the persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we can certainly understand the language of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in what sense is God the God of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul uses the same language in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In fact, Jesus Christ himself used similar language when he said in John chapter 20, following the resurrection, these words to Mary, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, But go to my brethren and say to them, 
I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what is the emphasis of this particular wording, this particular relationship? It is a reminder of the son's submission to the father in his redemptive mission. In the work of salvation, there is an administrative order in the Trinity. God the Father is the administrative head. He gives directives to the Son and the Spirit, and they obey His directives. That seems to be a contradiction with what we know about the nature of the Trinity, that it's one God in three persons, and each of the three persons are co-equal in wisdom and power and authority and in every divine attribute, and indeed that is true. But in the work of redemption, there was a voluntarily uh, submitting of himself by Christ to the Father in order to carry out the work of redemption. That's why I quote probably more than any other text in this pulpit, Philippians chapter 2, because that explains this better than anything else I know in the Word of God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, not a very good translation, or that translation is fine, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's an awkward phrase. Thought his equality with God not a prize to be grasped at and held on to at all costs. Philippians 2, as elsewhere in the Bible, affirms for us that the Son is fully equal with the Father. But he did not think his equality with the Father something that he should hold on to at all costs, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and allowed himself to be made in the form of man and fashioned himself as a servant, a slave, and became obedient Obedient to who? Obedient to the Father. Obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And thus it is in this redemptive mission that God the Son submits himself to the Father. And for this time, the time that it takes to accomplish the work of redemption, there is an order in the Trinity in which the Father does have and exercise greater authority than the Son or the Holy Spirit. But the day is coming when that will no longer be so. In fact, one of the goals that we are moving toward in the plan of redemption is that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Supreme Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, the reason I take time with this is because a misunderstanding of this leads to false doctrine. Jehovah's Witnesses and others have made much of the texts in the Scripture that talk about the Son's submission to the Father. Even words of Christ himself, many of them, when he says, Not my will, but thine be done. That's an expression of his submission to the Father. When he said, for example, in John fourteen twenty-eight. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. 
If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. How can the Father be greater than the Son if the Son is co-equal with the Father in all aspects of deity? In the work of redemption. In the work of redemption. This is what God, the Son, was willing to do to purchase fallen sons and daughters of Adam unto himself. This was what God the Son was willing to do to redeem people who are deserving of eternal condemnation. This is what God the Son was willing to do to rescue you and me from eternal hell where we fully deserve to go. God was willing to, as it were, ungod himself to some fashion, to some mysterious degree, temporarily, in order to become a man and a servant and to die on the cross. God can't die, but the God-man took upon him a, a human body, a, became a man so that he could die. Men die. God the Son became a man so that he could die. And it is that relationship that Peter is emphasizing here because he wants to stir up your souls to great praise to this God. And now let us notice the reason for Peter's praise. And we'll have to take the reasons rather quickly. And we're only going to look at the ones in verse 12. For actually, the reasons continue through verse... What did I say? Verse 12. I mean, verse 3. The reasons continue through verse 12. In fact, in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 constitute one sentence. It just keeps going on and on and on and on, adding yet another aspect of salvation and another aspect of salvation and another aspect of salvation and another aspect of salvation for which Peter praises God, for which we should praise God as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done all of these things, beginning in verse 3 and continuing on to verse 12. What a great God. What a gracious God. What a God who is fully worthy of all of our praise and adoration. But looking only at verse 3, the reasons for Peter's praise. And I notice here, number one, the how of salvation. Number two, the why of salvation. Number three, the what for of salvation. And number four, the certainty of salvation. The how of salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again. Has begotten us again. There's the how of salvation. How can God make fallen sinners, sons of Adam, ruined by the fall, sinful and rebellious in our relationship with God, how can God make us into His sons? Well, it requires a new birth. It requires a new creation. It requires divine power working within. And that's what God has done. He has saved us how? By the new birth. He has saved us by begetting us again. That's new birth terminology. We could say he has, according to his abundant mercy, has 
caused us to be born again is a more literal translation. According to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That is the translation of both the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. God, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again. How does God save us? He saves us by his life-creating power. The power of God that created Adam in the garden in the beginning is the power that is necessary to rescue fallen sons of Adam and make them sons of God. The power that it takes to create life in the womb, a miracle of God's grace and power every time it happens, well, that same power is necessary to make sinful sons of Adam into sons of God. It is a different kind of birth. It is a spiritual birth. It is a birth to a different realm, but there are many parallels to the physical birth, and it takes the life-creating power of God in both of these. This is sovereign power. God does it. We simply receive it. We are the benefits of it by His grace. God does it. God does it by Himself. God does it. He doesn't wait upon us in order to accomplish it. That is seen, of course, in the translation that we have before us. He caused us to be born again. We didn't cause ourselves to be born again. He caused us to be born again. But we see it also in the simple analogy of the new birth, which is found throughout Scripture. How many of you can take any credit or responsibility for your physical birth? What did you do to cause that? What did you do to help that along? What did you do to cooperate with your parents in order to bring about your conception and later your birth? All of us have to admit that we just showed up. It happened to us. Here I am, and I had nothing to do with my creation. I had nothing to do with my birth. Others were involved in that. Other forces besides my own were involved in that that brought about my life and yours. I had nothing to do with my first birth. I simply became aware of it at some point in time. And when I became aware of it is not when it happened. And I insert at this point the caution that don't beat yourself over the head trying to figure out exactly when you were born again. That's a misemphasis and a, and a very confusing one to many people to think you have to know the time and the place. Do you remember the time and the place when you were born? Now, there was a time, there was a place, but there's a difference between the fact that there was a time and a place and your consciousness of that time and place. Of course, there was a time and place. I was born at 8.05 a.m., as I recall, on April 28, 1948. How do I know? Not because I remember. Because my mother told me. She can testify to that. I think that's what my birth certificate says. And sometimes they get it off by a few minutes. When did I become aware of it? I don't even know. It just gradually I became aware of it. I don't know when I became aware that I am a person. I am a human being. 
I must have been born. There must have been a time and a place when I was born. I don't know when I became aware of it, but at some point in time, I knew that it was true. It was indisputably true. I think others actually became aware of it before I did. They had more maturity and experience, and they could see this child, and that's the evidence. This child is evidence that a birth took place. They didn't have to be at the hospital. They didn't have to to be the attending nurse to, to certify that a birth had taken place. The fact that I was there, a living child, was was certification enough that a birth had taken place. But others knew about it even before I did. But gradually I came into self-awareness and I knew that I was a child of God. And I knew there had to be a time and a place, but it wasn't important that I could pinpoint that time and place. It isn't even important that I can say exactly when that time and place is, except when legal requirements say produce your birth certificate. I'm here. I'm a living, breathing, seeing, hearing, thinking, speaking, willing, acting human being. That's evidence of my birth. Now, the same thing is true in the new birth. When spiritual life is operating within you, when the fruit of the Spirit is developing in your soul, when you become a seeing person, that is seeing eternal things, which the natural man cannot see. They are only known by those who are taught by the Spirit of God. When you can hear spiritual truth, when you are eager for spiritual truth, when you have a hunger for the Word of God, spiritual bread that feeds your soul, that feeds your spiritual life, when you have a desire to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to please Him, when you find yourself... Um, repenting of your sins and desiring to be rid of them and you no longer enjoy them the way that you used to and you are increasingly becoming a follower of Jesus Christ and these and many other evidences, marks of of the new birth are, are present within you. When these things are true, you know how that happened. You know what happened. What? You were born again. When? Maybe you know, maybe you don't. I think actually fewer of God's children truly know than don't, though some know. I think the Apostle Paul knew when and where it happened to him. But you know, that's really an exception in the Bible. How many others can you pinpoint in the Bible that can tell you, and you can find from the scriptural record, that they were born again at that place, at that time? Where was Peter born again? Where was John born again? Where and when? Go through all the apostles. When, where and when, when were they born again? It's very difficult to pinpoint that for anyone. And therefore, don't make that the most important thing in your life. Don't be misled by those who say that. I know, we've all heard the quartet sing it, haven't we? I can tell you now the time I can take you to the place. Now you know why I don't sing. Well, some people can tell you the time, and some people can take you to the place. I suspect a lot of people tell you a time and a place that actually isn't the time and the place when God did his work. That's probably the time and the place when they first became aware of it. Which is different, isn't it? 
Assurance of salvation is different from salvation. Knowledge of the new birth is different from the new birth. So the how of salvation, how, how, how does this happen to us? By God's power, by God's grace, by God's sovereign choice. And furthermore, birth speaks of a new beginning, of new life. And the point of the child's being born isn't now we've got a baby, whoopee, the goal has been reached. No, this is the beginning. Now we've got a new life to develop, to mature, to reach adulthood. Why is it that we talk so much about the wonderful potential of our young people? You know, at every graduation, we look out, wonderful, wonderful prospect, wonderful potential. Just imagine what these young people can do. Why, why do we say things like that? Because they haven't arrived yet. They haven't reached the purpose for which they were born. They're moving in that direction. And they have fulfilled some things, of course, because God's plan for our life involves all the days of our lives. But you see, the point of a child's birth is not to have an eternal baby. The point of a child's birth is to see the beginning of a new life and to see that life shaped into productive channels. The point of the new birth is not to have an eternal baby Christian. The point of the new birth is the beginning of a new life that you might develop and grow and be turned into productive spiritual channels. The why of salvation. Why did God save us? According to his abundant mercy. That's the only reason we're given. Mercy is the feeling of compassion toward the pitiful. This is the only reason given for our election, which we looked at the last Sunday and the Sunday before that in verse 2. What is the reason for our election? Because God took pity upon us. Because God had mercy upon our souls. Because God took pity in us in our pitiful condition and chose to do something about it In our case, and for reasons we don't understand, has passed others by. But God, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again. When God says, let there be light, there is light. When God says, be born again, you're born again. And God did that. Why? Because he wanted to. Because he felt like it. Because of his abundant mercy. I see a what for of salvation. And of course, this is just one of many. But why did God save us? Well, he's begotten us again to a living hope. On verse 2, we learned that we were saved unto obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many things that we could, could describe as the what for of salvation. For God has a number of purposes. But the one that is mentioned here in verse 3 is to a living hope. God saves us so that we who are saved will have a living or lively hope, as the old King James put it. Hope is an attitude of expectation, of optimism. God's people have been delivered from hopelessness. Here's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.12, that at the time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. Apart from Christ, there isn't any hope, any any pretense toward hope is simply whistling in the dark past the cemetery. There is no hope for those who are outside of Christ, but there is wonderful hope for those who are in Christ. God's people ought to be the most cheerful, the most optimistic, the most positive, the most forward-looking people in all the world. We have a living hope. We have a hope that is steadfast and sure. In spite of trials. And Peter is talking to people who are abounding in trials. Hope is a joyous expectation of what God has in store for his people. It is a living hope because it has been given to us by the life of the living God. And because it is living, it is growing and developing. So our hope is growing and developing and increasing from day to day and month to month and year to year. Be encouraged, dear friend. Be faithful, dear friend. Unfaithfulness to God will diminish your hope. It breaks your fellowship with God. It damages your joyful expectation of what God is doing and will do. The hope is given to sustain us joyfully through life's trials. This hope is given to enable us to face death with peace and joy. It grows stronger in God's children as they come closer to death. We were so encouraged to hear the testimony of Jerry Fawcett, who died this week, and to hear the report that just before he died, he said to his wife and daughters, I'm on the other side. I see Jesus. I love you. He closed his eyes. He was gone. Wow. Who couldn't die like that? Well, that's the hope that God's children have and is real and it grows and it sustains us right up to the very end. Death is not the end for a child of God, but the new beginning, the beginning of a new stage of salvation. We complete stage one upon the earth. We move into stage two in heaven and we await stage three with the return of Christ and the resurrection of our glorified bodies. That's a living hope that God has given to his children. Are you experiencing a hope like that? Do you have that expectation, that joy, joyful sense of expectation and certainty? If not, why not? And then there's a certainty of salvation. This hope we know is certain because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This hope is grounded in the objective reality of Christ's resurrection. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. We're of all men most miserable. You see, the Christian faith is is grounded upon fact. There is faith, but it's grounded upon fact. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. We have no salvation. I know Christians who act like it wouldn't make any difference whether Jesus did or didn't rise from the dead, whether whether he died on the cross or didn't die on the cross, whether he was really the Son of God or wasn't the Son of God, because their Christian faith is all wrapped up in emotions and the power of positive thinking, and it really has very little, if anything, to do with the Word of God. It's all a pipe dream. It's an illusion. It is a counterfeit. It is not true Christianity. Real Christianity is based upon truth. It's based upon facts. It's based upon the fact of Christ rising from the dead. 
And the resurrection is central to it all. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there is no salvation. If the tomb is empty and the only explanation is the resurrection of Jesus by the power of God, then, dear friends, we have a hope that is certain. It is steadfast and sure. This is truth that anchors the soul in hope. So what do I learn from this? Well, I have learned to be more intentional with my praise. Peter's reasons to praise God are my reasons to praise God. Peter's reasons to praise God are your reasons to praise God if you're his child. Praise is his due. Give it to him. Praise is your strength and your health. Give God praise so that he will receive what is due to him. That's first and foremost. But give God praise so that your own spiritual life will be healthy and abound. Because little praise means poor spiritual health. Much praise indicates sound spiritual health. So praise him. Praise him in song, with your voice, with your mind, thinking about the words of the songs that you sing, because that gives you the reason for praise. Praise him with a willing heart that joins in with the knowledge of your mind as to what Christ has done for you. And give to God the praise that is due to his name. Give it to him joyfully, enthusiastically, willingly, frequently. Not only in the assembly of the saints, but praise him to your friends. Praise him to your neighbors. Praise him to your wife. Praise him to your children. Praise him in the daytime. Praise him at night. Praise him at work. Praise him at school. Praise him wherever you go. Give to God the praise that is due unto his name. And if you have no reason to do so, then acknowledge your spiritual poverty, your spiritual need. And go to Christ and beg for that powerful mercy that brings life out of death. And ask Him to do that for you. Shall we pray? Father, what a great God you are. We can't begin. We can't begin to recount all the reasons to give you praise. We can't even fully comprehend all the aspects of salvation. But what a delight it is to consider Salvation in some of its parts. How it thrills the souls of all of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord God, forgive us for not being more lively. Forgive us for not being more intentional in our praise. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for not proclaiming to others the greatness of our God and the greatness of salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us to honor our Lord and Savior, and the God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.